Welcome to episode 13, where as promised, I will share some of the golden nuggets my case manager had said to me while advocating to participate in an interdisciplinary team meeting. And I'm going to call today's episode, A Familiar Feeling. Women who are dealing with the consequences, the adverse effects, the trauma of a dysfunctional, abusive, romantic relationship, oftentimes defined by domestic violence, we will engage in overcompensation. For many of us, this overcompensation is an attempt in a constant struggle to prove our worth and our value and to yell from the top of the highest mountain that we do indeed matter and that we do indeed deserve better. We busy ourselves with making sure our bodies are as put together as possible, that our houses are in order, that we are performing at work, that we smile and that we share that we can do, we will do, and I dare you to think that I can do anything other than to get it done. For those of us who have children, it is critical that we do those things. So it's not just a reaction to the abuse so that we can prove our worthiness, but it's also because we have this critical responsibility to raise our child or children in an environment that looks as normal as possible, that feels as loving as possible, that gives them the fertile soil so that they can live and grow and have a better life. By the time someone comes in, a helper, to say, hey, this is how you can extricate yourself from that dysfunctional, abusive, romantic relationship, it is usually focused with the idea of severing that relationship and getting away from that relationship. It's the number one safety rule, right? That the goal is to be physically safe, emotionally detached, and to no longer be at risk of being abused. This is honorable. This is just. This is appropriate. However, what slays me is that when that helper is providing that message, and many times the assistance to leave the abuser, what rarely is addressed is leaving all of that success you created around the abuser. That, in the name of staying alive and not getting your face pummeled, you are also being asked to leave or to somehow change that beautiful home you created, to leave or change that job that you dug in and you made happen and is your fiscal 
foundation, foundation, to uproot your children, to detach from your community, to realize that you cannot bring your talisman with you, whether it's one or many, your clothing, your jewelry, your keepsakes, your books, your music, your photographs, all those things that, if not define, reflect not only your personality, but all of your hard work. And it's amazing to me that in my situation, the final situation where I was able to remove the abuser, I had to fight to say, no, I'm not leaving the house I bought and paid for. No, I'm not moving my belongings that I've held on to for 30 years. No, I'm not going to spend my limited money to reside in a hotel room. No, I'm not going to a shelter so I can be afraid that all of the aforementioned will be destroyed or stolen or taken from me. I had to work with my domestic violence advocate much in the same way I've had to work with my HIV and AIDS advocates in this manner, meaning in the context of HIV and AIDS, it is not enough for me to take a medication that will keep me alive if I don't have a life that's worthy living for. Similarly, should I get strong enough, and I did get strong enough, to once again, but finally, remove the abuser from my life, it is not good enough to simply go, I'm not getting hit anymore. It is the best to be able to say, darn straight, I'm not getting hit anymore but I'm not going to get hit anymore in my house, with my belongings, with my history, with the way I generate income, with the way I structure my life. What is quite frequently difficult for women who are trying to indeed extricate themselves from a dysfunctional, abusive, romantic relationship that can indeed be defined by domestic violence. That in addition to trying to hold on to all of their belongings and the environment they have fought to create, they are also in a position to examine all of their relationships and if they're not being encouraged to do so, they most definitely should. And this is why we have a tendency to compartmentalize. So we can go and say to ourselves, well, yes, I go home to a horrific romantic relationship, but everything else is fine. I get along with my coworkers, my family members, and my friends. And this is the critical part. We say that many times because all of those people are not as bad 
as our horrific romantic relationship. That is not the same as they are healthy for me. So when we are learning how to examine how it is we got so neck deep into a horrific romantic relationship, we are looking at things like behaviors we'll tolerate, things that are said to us that we do not correct, our need to use qualifiers or to constantly apologize, or conversely to thump our chests and go, ha, I can do this, watch me, to see our friendships and family relationships and work relationships engage in things like gaslighting or to do things that you know are not healthy or honorable like drug use or having affairs or being sexist or being discriminatory because once again even though all of those things are bad or unhealthy or not things that we would like to align ourselves with still less hurtful painful more tolerable because they make us feel better or it's not as bad as the crap we go home to day in and day out with our partners all by way of saying if we don't have the communication skills, the intestinal fortitude, the emotional regulation, the strength to set healthy boundaries with our horrific romantic relationship, it's highly probable that that is also happening in every other relationship. So one of two things have to happen, in my opinion, that part of that safety plan with extricating yourself from your abuser ought to start with, how about you examine all of the peripheral relationships that you accept and tolerate, if not actually love and appreciate? Are you setting the boundaries? Are you learning how to say something without a qualifier? Are you able to say, I love you, but I'm not in alignment with you having an adulterous affair? It's not something I would engage in, and it's not something that I wish for you. And one might not say that because they know they're going home to an abusive partner. So if they can't make a decision to not engage in unhealthy behavior, then who are they to suggest or support or help someone else to not engage in unhealthy behavior? But this is the point. It is the practice and the practice with someone of whom you love and loves you that does have traction. They are not an abuser. And so you flex your muscles for acquiring and using and becoming proficient in the skills to stand your ground. And if that doesn't happen before you boot the abuser out, 
then most certainly after you extricate yourself from that most damaging romantic relationship, then you most definitely need to reflect upon and make decisions about your support team. Because if your support team is still engaging in harmful, hurtful behavior, albeit better than the one your partner was exhibiting, that's your slippery slope. That's where you may fall back because you are still aligning yourself with unhealthy behavior. Thus, when I met with my case manager, that's exactly what I was doing. I was looking at myself, who I am, and my skill set, and how to have my voice be heard in a way that was healthy, appropriate, just, and honorable. And it was hard. Before I tell you the golden nuggets that were shared with me by my case manager, I would like to paint a picture for you. I had taken a trip last June up to see my extended family. And I had a moment when I was sitting with one of my family members and we were addressing an issue with that said family member and I received a phone call. And that phone call I received, I don't even know why I took the call. Typically I don't, especially if I don't recognize the number, but I took the call and it was a therapist that things had gotten so bad between me and my abusive romantic partner that I was like, okay, I can do one last ditch effort here. How about some couples therapy? It's mind numbing that couples therapy is not readily available nor easily covered by insurance if it does not include children, by the way, at least in my state. And so this professional was calling to set up the first session for the said couples therapy to which I arranged, I hung up the phone and then returned to the issue that I was addressing collaboratively with my family member. And my family member said, what was that all about? What's going on? What's going on between you and your partner? And I was like, oh, hot spit. My family members, particularly extended family members, did not have a New York clue with what had been transpiring with my partner. Not just recently, but over the 15 year time span, because you see everything in the previous segment was exactly what I was doing. And when you set up the paradigm of you have it all under control, and you don't want to have your butt flying in the breeze and you have tons of ass pride, the abuser gets to have the shelter and the facade of everything being okay. 
And so I look to my family member, and this is what's important. What was coming out of my mouth was highly practiced cover-up language. So it was, uh, you know, ambiguous. It was nothing particular, no specifics. But this is what's key. My body started uncontrollably shaking. My body language uh, caved in on itself. My shoulders drooped. My head went down. My knees came together. And I felt like I wanted to vomit. I became flush. My face had reddened. I began to sweat. And the the welling behind my eyes of knowing that the flood of tears were going to come. And then I had this cotton batting in my head. And shame began to engulf me and want to eat me up. Because how is it that I could be so strong, so attractive, so smart, so capable, and not be able to just look at my family member and go, hey, I need therapy because he's mean to me and he's making my life miserable and I'm trying to fix it. And my family member, with love and concern, saw me in real time having a meltdown to something she perceived as somehow innocuous and then out of love and concern pressed the issue. And I wasn't ready. I was getting ready, but I wasn't ready to be on the hot seat. I wasn't ready to divulge all of the things that were happening to me. Moreover, I did not want to verbalize the guilt and the shame that I stayed with this SOB for so long. And I really did want to address the issue that my family member and I were sitting down to address. I didn't want it to become about me. But that was one of the final moments. That was one of the final defining moments where I said, never again. So when you place recovery and you place leaving your abuser in the context of all your other relationships, like the example I just painted for you, you then realize that your primary dysfunctional, abusive, romantic relationship affects all of your relationships. It affects it in terms of your transparency, your authenticity, your willingness to be truthful, your ability to share and be compassionate and engage in a decision-making process with those people, again, who love you and want to be part of your support team. So when you can't exercise all those skills with those individuals, you are actually severing yourself from the very support system who will be there when you have left the person who hurts you.
the golden nuggets shared by my case manager had very little to do with me. It had much more to do with the position that that case manager held and the world view that was held by holding that position. When this case manager clarified that we did not hold a therapeutic relationship, I was grateful. I was grateful because that's a healthy boundary. That's a healthy professional boundary. This case manager acknowledged that this case manager was not hired to provide mental health services because this case manager was not trained nor hired nor required to engage in this skill set reflective of a mental health provider. So when this case manager said to me, we have a really good relationship, I could say yes. I could say yes because of that healthy boundary. And when this case manager had said to me, I just wanted to check in on you. I know that was a stressful period. Again, I could say yes, because that individual had taken the time to reflect on my behavior without trying to make a decision on my behalf. Because we all know many helpers just like to tell you what to do. Believe it or not, many of us know what to do. We know not to eat as much salt and sugar. We know not to smoke cigarettes. We know we should be walking. We know, we know, we know we should leave the abuser. <laughs> yes, we know we should take the medication. But when you set healthy boundaries and you observe behavior and you can acknowledge that behavior and ask open ended questions, then you're putting the impetus on the person who will make the decision to do so in a healthy environment. In the context of brainstorming the outline so I can advocate for myself with the members on my support team, my medical treatment team, this case manager did not proceed to, to list ideas. Matter of fact, this case manager knew it was not the place for this individual to decide. This individual knew that that content had to come from me. And just how much power does it take just how much strength does it take for a service provider who sees what you don't see to be able to hold their tongue and not tell you what to do, but to shepherd you through your own decision-making process? I think that's badass. I think that is phenomenal because when you have relationships 
whether they are personal or professional. And someone knows enough to know you are smart enough. You are indeed capable enough to make your own decision. That their job is to simply arm you with an arsenal of information and to arm you with an arsenal of support while you make the decision is sublime. It is wonderful because it doesn't insult your intelligence. It doesn't take away your power. It doesn't mean somebody else gets to take credit. It means that that person cares for you so much they will invest in your strength, invest in your skills, and believe that you can indeed make the decision. Ah, I want to cry. It's beautiful. Beautiful. I have heard some machination in one way or another of, oh, Bethany, not everyone is like you. And it always felt like someone was either patting me on the head or slapping me in the face. But when this case manager said it, it was said in this context. This is all about constructive criticism, isn't it, Bethany? And I was like, whoa, whoa, somebody gets it. That's right. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I am phenomenally grateful for the services I have received. I am phenomenally grateful the success of the treatment I've received. However, there are a few things that need to be tweaked, and these few things are really important. So I was grateful that this individual didn't dismiss the fact that I didn't say and I wasn't willing to be okay with, well, 75% of it is pretty cool. No, 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 no. Uh, you don't get paid for providing 75% effective services. And I don't go with the expectation to receive 75% effective services. The ideal is 100%. And if we can't make 100%, that's fine. But to ask less from the onset is gross. It's inappropriate. I mean, it's like me saying, I'm only going to show up to work 75% of the time. I'm only going to parent 75% of the time. I'm only going to pay my bills 75% of the time. It's ridiculous. So when this case manager understood that this was not an attack, this was not some fear-mongering or greedy give-me-get-me, that it was simply for everybody who sat around the table, who sits around the table, which, by the way, ought to include me, is to examine the service, excuse me, the service delivery system in such a way that we can build on what has been successful so that of which is outstanding and is not successful can be improved upon. And that, my friends, is what it's about in all relationships, whether it's your immediate family, extended family, your friendship, your coworker, whether it's your boss, your neighbor, 
the person who chairs the committee project you work on, and yes, your romantic relationship. Mind blown. Thank you for joining me for this episode. It is hope that is beginning to be understood that whether a woman is living with HIV, HIV chronic infection, AIDS, that it's much akin to the process of a dysfunctional, abusive, romantic relationship oft defined by domestic violence. Telling these women to just do it is counterproductive, counterintuitive, and actually quite damaging. It is a process. It is a process that takes time. And it is a process that involves everyone in that woman's network. The statistics are staggering. I challenge you to find one woman living with HIV, HIV chronic infection, or AIDS, and ask them if they have a history devoid of an abusive romantic relationship, oft defined by domestic violence. Please check out my website, www.bonbonsandbubblebaths.com. You're welcome to follow me on Instagram by the same handle, Bonbons and Bubble Baths. Let's share in the wisdom, make healthier decisions, and acknowledge HIV is more than a mode of transmission. Until the next time. Thank you.